Health Matters with Karen Key. Campaigning for Cancer recently launched its new Cancer at Work program, which is aimed at helping cancer patients and their employers to understand their rights and obligations and the cancer journey. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Lauren Pretorius, CEO of Campaigning for Cancer. Lauren, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. This is rather an exciting program that you've launched. It's the first of its kind in South Africa. Yes, Corin. Um, we're very excited at Campaigning for Cancer about this um, program. It's taken a long time to develop it, but um, we felt the need that in South Africa there was not a, currently a program within the workplace that explained what happens when someone is diagnosed. So many people are affected by that diagnosis, and how do you navigate that journey from an employer's side from an employee side and also from a co-worker side. So that was something that we wanted to present and um, make available to people in the workplace. I think the biggest fear of people who are diagnosed with cancer is that if you tell somebody, the automatic reaction is, it's cancer, oh my goodness, you know, that's the end, you're going to die and you're going to, what's going to happen, we're going to have to find someone to replace you. But that isn't the case these days. Cancer can be beaten, we hear that all the time. And I think it's just to get your colleagues and your employers to understand that there is a journey, as we've mentioned, and they just need to walk it with you. Yes, you know, um, nowadays with early detection, um, people go into treatment for a certain time and period in time and come out of that treatment and can be a productive part of that workplace mm. for, you know, many, many years to come. So it's something that we want to concentrate on because just for that very fact that it's, uh, cancer diagnosis is not the end. Um, it's a moment in time that plans need to be made during it, but it's, it, it is, it's a very real possibility and reality that those people who have been diagnosed with cancer can return back into the workplace and be as productive as they were before they were diagnosed. Up until now, Lauren, what has actually been happening in the workplace? Have people been discriminated against because of the diagnosis? Well, Campaigning for Cancer runs a call centre that helps patients navigate the journey. And through this call centre, we were getting a lot of calls from patients that consisted of a number of things. There were patients that had been um, discriminated against and fired because they'd been diagnosed. These were in the rare cases. But generally what happened was when a patient was diagnosed, the, in the beginning, the workplace said, we'll, we'll stand by you, we'll help you, whatever you need. And that. But cancer, cancer treatment can take a long time. And the one thing you guaranteed with cancer treatment is that you will probably run out of leave days. And when that happens, it puts everyone in a difficult situation. You've had the workplace and the employer that said, don't worry, we'll stand by you, you know, we'll make sure that, you know, you, you looked after because they don't want to seem cruel. And then we have the employee who's working on that precedent and that discussion that all of a sudden has, is called in for a conversation and said, look, you've run out of leave days, what's happening? And that was the major problem that we wanted. So we wanted to create a program that could stop that scenario happening and could give the employer and the employee a steps that they could take once there was a diagnosis that could help them that that didn't happen, that that conversation never happened because other conversations had happened earlier on. One of the things that you are doing is that you are producing step-by-step -step guides for both employers, employees and the work colleagues of the people involved in the situation. 
Yes, the, um, the Cancer at Work um, program consists of workshops for both the employer and then workshops for the employee. And in those um, workshops, we explain to the employer what it means to have can- um, be diagnosed with cancer so that they fully understand what, is, what journey the, ca- the patient's going uh, to be undertaking. You know, Every employer knows I've broken my arm or I'm having my appendix out. They know, okay, well, it's two weeks or six weeks. And, but with cancer, it's not like that because every individual is treated differently because of their disease. And then with the employee, we create a, wor- a workshop that explains to them what, what is the information they should give to their, to their boss or the employer and also how to deal with their coworkers. And then there are resource materials for each one of these, as well as um, we've gone quite extensively into the labor law and what the rights are of South Africans with regards to labor law, which was developed um, in conjunction with worksmen's attorneys. So we've actually provided, um, you know, the staff and employees a step-by-step guide of what their rights are and how they can protect those rights. And then what their responsibilities are. Now, people listening to this, Lauren, if they possibly, unfortunately, have been diagnosed with with cancer and are are now sitting at work and not having told anybody yet, can they contact Campaigning for Cancer and can you possibly facilitate a workshop to enable them to get their employers to really understand before they tell anybody? Absolutely. They can contact us on our call centre, which is 0861-275-669. Or they can contact us via email at info at campaignforcancer.co.za. And the four is the number four, is it? Yes. Okay, <laughs> Campaign for Cancer. And your website is www.campaignforcancer.co.za. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so there's lots of, of help out there for anybody in this situation. And if you're an employer and you're listening to this, it's not a bad idea to get ahead of this. So you might not have, have come across any of your staff who have thankfully not yet being diagnosed with cancer, but you never know what the future may hold and it might not be such a bad idea to get yourself aware now before. So if, heaven forbid, this does occur in your business, at least you know how to handle this and what your rights are, what your employees' rights are, so there's no drama at the time. Yeah. You know, Karen, um, they did a uh, survey in 2000 for the United States of America and it was estimated that almost one... 115 billion U.S. dollars were lost in productivity a year because of cancer in the workplace. Is that because so there was nothing in place? It's a real problem for employers. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you can see it from both sides of, of the story, basically. But it's, as I said, you need to kind of get ahead of it. Lauren? Yes. Oh, you are there. Sorry, no, yes. there was just a bleep. Okay. No, so it's it's best to sort of prepare yourself so that it doesn't come as a shock and then you're sort of scurrying to try and sort something out. At least if you prepare beforehand, you know exactly how to deal with it. Absolutely. And it's, it's understanding that, you know, there's a, a set plan beforehand and com- certain communication that happens and discussions that have to, and everyone's got a plan. Everyone knows what to do because, you know, at the end of the day, information is king. And if you've got that, you know, it, it helps in that journey. It's, it's a huge empowering step for a patient and an employer to have that information on hand. Well, Lauren, I think we, I'm going to give out all those contact details again if anybody needs to get in touch with you. But thank you very much indeed for your time on the show this evening. Thank you.
you very much and thanks for having us. Lauren Pretorius is CEO of Com- Campaigning for Cancer. And if you'd like more information, you can look at the website. It's www.campaignforcancer.co.za and the campaign for the four is the number four. Or you can call the call centre number. It's 861 Health Matters with Karen Key. I'm joined on the line this evening by Dr. Joanne Miller. She's a Johannesburg ophthalmologist with a special interest in medical retinal diseases. And coming up on Saturday is World Retina Day. And from the end of September until the end of October, it's World Retina Month. So it's just the perfect time to be chatting about this. Dr. Miller, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. So we're going to be talking this evening about AMD, which is age-related macular degeneration. Now, I'm sure there are lots of people listening out there who have this condition. Do you want to just explain to those who aren't aware of exactly what this is, how this can affect you? Yes, it's actually a very common condition, and it's important that everybody is aware of it. It affects a lot of patients, especially in the white and Indian populations, affecting up to a quarter or a third of the population over the age of about 60, though it can occur at a younger age. And what happens with this disease is it's a slow, progressive condition where central vision, which is the the vision given by the macula, is slowly affected. Initially, it may just be a need for more light, but slowly the central detail for reading, writing, recognizing faces, driving a motor car is affected, and there can be distortion of straight lines. So the slowly progressive worsening from about the 60s affecting every aspect of your life, and it is so common that every person needs to be aware of it. It definitely has a genetic inheritance, So it seems to be multifactorial. There are genes inherited from your mother and your father that may contribute to developing uh, macular degeneration at a later age. But environmental factors also play an important part. And because we can't actually test for those genes at this stage, I feel that everyone needs to live as though they may get the disease and protect themselves appropriately. Sorry, it's not a given that if your parents or one or other of your parents have this, that you're definitely going to get it. It's not a given. It's a quite complex genetic inheritance. Okay. Now, the problem, though, is that, you know, people, it's one of those things, you know, I don't have to go to the doctor because there's nothing wrong with me. But it's this whole thing about early detection. And if people do, if this is detected early enough, is there anything that can be done? There are more and more things becoming available. We don't have a cure for the condition, but I agree with you. People need to be seen from the 50s if they have a family history of the disease. And what we're finding is that most of our optometrists who work closely with the ophthalmologists are screening for this condition also. Many of them have color cameras in their practice, and they would pick up the condition even before there are symptoms and refer on to a doctor. And because the environmental and lifestyle changes are so important, early detection is very important. I'm interested in the lifestyle changes Mm. and possibly the environmental impact, possibly in some of these cases. What exactly are all those? Well, first of all, I want to mention that because we are living longer, unfortunately, we are seeing more patients with a condition. So you may have a longer lifespan with the condition, 
But the things that you need to be doing from a young age, from childhood, is first of all sun protection. Sun protection under the African sun is vital. And that means sunglasses, sun hat if you're outdoors, getting out of the habit of sunbathing and sun worshipping. We have to be more aware of the dangers of the sun. Next, it's vital that nobody smokes. Smoking is toxic to the retina. And we now know that it increases your risk of getting the disease by about tenfold, that often the disease happens at a younger age and is less amenable to treatment if you're a smoker. And it's not the smoke blowing into your eyes. It's the toxins that are absorbed into your system by smoking. So sun protection and smoking are the two big things. The others are really very logical. You need to be seen by your doctor after the age of 40 every year to exclude any vascular diseases like high blood pressure, sugar, cholesterol, because they can contribute to vascular diseases of the eye. And it's important that you eat a healthy, balanced, low-fat diet, exercise gently, and control your weight, because the healthier you are, obviously the healthier your eyes are going to be. Interesting to hear you say about the sun because, you know, we've been hearing about don't lie out in the sun from the Cancer Association mm. talking about skin cancer. But so what people need to understand that sunglasses are not just a fashion accessory. Absolutely not. And they need a good pair. They need a pair that's either 100% UVA and UVB protective or Polaroid and a nice big wraparound pair. And children with sunglasses, how important is that? It's vitally important. Uh, nowadays, you get very good ranges of children's sunglasses. And if you're having a family holiday at the dam or the, the beach, they need to be protected as well. So it's sunburn cream, sun hats, sunglasses. Limit your time in the sun. Stay out of the sun at midday. So these sort of 50-cent pairs of plastic sunglasses we normally pop on the children's no. faces, not going to work. They need to have UV protection as well, the children. Yes, yes. Very important. And we're talking today about retinal disease exacerbated by the sun, like macular degeneration. But of course, every structure from lid um, cancerous skin growths to growths on the eye, the white of the eye, the conjunctiva, to earlier cataract formation, there are multiple other things that are affected by the sun. Now, going back to macular degeneration, there are two forms of that. Would you like to just explain about the two types of, of macular degeneration? Corin, this is actually vitally important and it's difficult to understand. The descriptions of, are of what we're seeing as a specialist on the retina. And we talk about dry macular degeneration and wet. The technical terms are geographic atrophy or exudative. Uh, macular degeneration. The dry form is the most common. We see that in about 80% of our patients where the retina has an aging wear and tear and thinning. There are also multiple spots on the retina called drusen and that causes a slow gradual deterioration of central vision. It's more common and it slowly progresses. The wet form can occur once you've had the dry form and the retina has thinned and in that form blood vessels grow into the retina and start leaking and bleeding and that is rapidly dangerous to your central vision and needs to be acted on immediately. So the wet form means that there's actually leaking and bleeding 
on the macula, which is the central part of the retina, that gives you fine, detailed vision. Now, there is some form of treatment available for the wet type. In the last 10 years, the most amazing treatments have been developed with a group of drugs called anti-VEGF drugs, anti-vascular endothelial growth factor drugs. And they are given as a repeated injection into the eye to act where they need it. They're not a cure, so they need to be given as ongoing chronic treatment. And they have a dramatic effect on the abnormal blood vessel growth, leaking and swelling, preserving the normal anatomy of the eye and maintaining and saving vision. And to me, this anti-VEGF injection into the eye has been the biggest breakthrough in ophthalmology in the last 20 years. It's rather exciting to hear that there's new developments and, and new research, I'm assuming, going on all the time. So we can, I would imagine in the not-too-distant future be looking forward to some more amazing developments. Yes, there's a, a lot of work being done on both the dry and the wet form. Research and development and trials, because it is such a common disease affecting such a huge amount of our population. So it's not all is not lost at this stage, so we have to be no. positive. We used to send our patients home and tell them that they would slowly lose their vision. And now we are proactive and we have a lot that we can do to maintain vision, slow deterioration, keep people independent and active and often still driving. So if something is wrong, you notice that there is something going on that you aren't quite seeing as well as you used to. Don't just assume it's because you're getting old or because you're tired. Rather go and have it checked out. Do not leave it. Is that, I mean, that is, I think, the most very, important very message. Important. Mm. So it's important that you are being seen by an eye care specialist. So optometrists are often the first port of call because you're there for your glasses checkup, and they would pick up pathology as well and refer you on. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have a family history of any eye disease, get yourself to an ophthalmologist. Now, I mentioned that it was World Retina Day coming up on Saturday, and we've spoken about age-related macular degeneration. What other eye conditions would fall under retina problems, problems with retina? Age-related macular degeneration is by far the most common. And because we have a treatment for the wet form, um, we are trying to make people aware of it and get them into our practices. But we're also trying to make people aware of especially the juvenile macular degenerations, such as Stargard's disease, cone dystrophy, and retinitis pigmentosa that can affect people at a much younger age and as a result affect their learning, education, and careers. And so it's very important that these diseases are picked up at a young age because there are genetic tests available now, trials that are starting overseas, and possible gene therapy, stem cell replacement, um, exciting treatments for the future. Now, would a child exhibit symptoms of any of those conditions without either one of the parents showing any signs of it themselves? Yes, it could be a recessively inherited condition where the parents each are gene carriers and the child can inherit both of the, of the genes and then express the disease. And what would then happen at a young age, in the first decade or in the teens, that they have difficulty with fine, detailed vision, work at school, some of them present needing more light or losing peripheral vision, and often because children aren't able to express that they're not seeing that well, 
they are thought to be uh, malingering or joking and it's not taken as seriously as it should be. So if a child complains of not being able to see, they must be taken to the optometrist or ophthalmologist immediately. And most schools now have screening programs where children are checked in the preschool years to make sure that they have good, normal, bilateral vision, that they don't need glasses, that they don't have a squint, because that education is so visually based. So there are a lot of screening programs out there as well. Now, if that is done at a very young age, in the early days of school, and nothing is evident, could it then possibly be picked up or something? Could it then appear later, or would there be evidence of it at, at that very young age already? No, the diseases present at different ages, depending on the genetic inheritance. So it's important to just always be vigilant. A lot of my patients present in the teenage years with deterioration. That's just a first step. I'm just concerned about parents thinking, oh, well, they got tested in sort of grade one, so they're fine, and then leaving it after that. But, you know, even if your child was tested and everything was okay when they were in grade one, and now they're in grade five or something, and they're complaining of not being able to see too clearly, you don't think to yourself, well, they got tested a few years ago, they must be fine. Rather go and get it checked out. It's only for the child's benefit. Yes, I agree with you. Diseases can present later, and so can refractive errors, which is the need for spectacles. And we still have thousands of youngsters who are refractive blind. That means that all they need is a pair of spectacles and they'd be able to see properly. So it could be as simple as just popping off to an, to an optometrist initially to have your children's eyes checked and your own. After a certain yes. age, we should all be going off to have our eyes checked at least once a year. Mm. And Most of us go to our optometrist in the mid-40s where we stop being able to read properly. And they're also a very important group of optometrists called low vision specialists who are highly qualified optometrists who concentrate on people with an underlying eye disease, especially retinal diseases. And they don't concentrate on giving them spectacles only. It's about lighting and contrast and magnification and a wonderful range of magnifying glasses. And then, of course, new technology using iPads and Kindles, enlarging font, changing back lighting. Our new computer technology is our greatest visual aid for people with poor vision. Well, there you have it. There's always something that can be done to help you in whichever way there is possible. So please do not leave your eyes. They are very, very important to you, I'm sure. And so, you know, it's something we don't want to mess around with. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time this evening. And hopefully people out there have had a little bit more hope now and understanding that this is something we shouldn't be leaving. We shouldn't be messing around with our vision. Go and get it checked out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Karen. I was chatting there with Dr. Joanne Miller, and she's a Johannesburg ophthalmologist with a special interest in medical retinal diseases. And World Retina Day is coming up on Saturday, and from the end of September until the end of October, it's World Retina Month. So there'll be lots of stuff in the press, in the media, trying to encourage you to take care of your eyes. Go and get them checked out, get your children checked out, and look after yourself. All those tips and hints that Dr. Miller gave us about not smoking, about not lying out in the sun, wearing proper sunglasses, protect your eyes. You only get one pair, and you need to look after them. The Oliver and Adelaide Trumbo Foundation, in partnership with SAFM, invites you to join the third annual Oliver and Adelaide Trumbo Liberation Walk on the 5th of October, 2013. This year's theme is 10,000 feet united for education. Enter the 5, 10 or 21 kilometer walk as we honor these struggle heroes. 
Entertainment for kids and family will be provided too. For more information, visit tamboliberationwalk.co.za. Join us as we walk to educate. You asked for it, and now it's here. SAFM proudly presents the best of the African Connection with Richard Mwamba, the dance edition. Dance yourself silly in this compilation of the best dance numbers of the African Connection with Richard Mwamba, now available at reputable CD outlets. agree yeah. to disagree and vice versa and just get the job done right so we can all yeah. be singing kumbaya month and Manda, don't argue with the customer don't argue with, even if he's wrong it's like when you're in a tavern Manda, and then a guy with his old star steps on your toe you don't actually clap him no no you say you know what my foot went under your foot by mistake and then you know they won't be any fight <laughs> Join me, Manda Shongwe, every weekday, 4 to 6 a.m. on SFM as I bring you Heads Up. Health Matters with Karen Key. I'm chatting this evening with Dean Fawcett, Head of Robotic Assistance Surgery at Earth Medical, which is part of the Lytha Healthcare Group. And um, rather exciting, we have the first robotic surgeon, which is now being installed here in South Africa. Dean, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, and thank you for the time. I think we've all possibly seen at one time or another on television, if we watch enough of it, there is this robotic technology out there. What is it exactly, and how does it actually work? Okay, well, robotic surgery, or the Da Vinci Surgical Platform, is actually what they call Teddy Robotic System. Now, if I take a step back, currently you have two ways of being operated on. You have conventional open surgery, and that's where the abdomen or wherever it is is sliced open and the doctor physically operates. Then 20 odd years ago, they moved to what a lot of people today will know as keyhole surgery mm. or laparoscopic surgery. Now, the reason for that shift was smaller holes means less pain, less blood loss, less infection, quicker recovery. The limitations of that type of surgery is that the surgeon physically is holding the instruments inside the abdomen at the tip of these instruments that lie inside the abdomen, they only the jaws open and close. So in other words, there's no wrist at the end of that little instrument. And while the doctor is having to operate, the movements that he makes is counterintuitive. So the instrument to move left inside the abdomen, you're actually physically moving the stick in the opposite direction, right, outside the body. And while he's doing all of this, or she, they're looking at a two-dimensional image on a typically a normal TV-type screen. What Da Vinci has done is it's combined those two approaches. So now you have a minimally invasive platform with the difference that the doctor now sits at a console and the movements that they make sitting at the console, they have little tweezers that they take hold of. Whatever movements they make there, the, the robot that has four arms, one holds the camera and three hold instruments, now, when the doctor makes a movement at the console, the little fingertips inside the, the body, if you like, mimic their movement. So if they open and close their fingers, roll their wrist, and move it to the left, the little instrument does exactly that. So it's an intuitive movement. There's no more counterintuitive, 
And the other key thing is that the actual technology provides a three-dimensional high-definition image back to the doctor. So it is like they were inside the body seeing all the organs and the blood vessels in the definition that they need to. And the benefits, I imagine, are enormous. They are. I mean, fundamentally, you know, I, I always say there's some brilliant surgeons in all those disciplines out there. Laparoscopic was very, because of the complexities I explained to you, it was difficult and a lot of brilliant open surgeons just couldn't or didn't want to migrate to the learning curve to um, the laparoscopic. What Da Vinci's done is it's opened up minimally invasive surgery to more doctors and hence, therefore, more patients globally. And the fundamental benefits are that you are able to do a more reproducible operation because of the computer interface, the reduction in tremor, for example, if between the doctor and the robot is significant. So you're not, it enables the doctor to do a much more precise operation. Um, and for the patient, clearly, um, you know, when, I, when the patient goes into hospital, will I stay in there long? Will I be fixed? And will it hurt? And ultimately, minimally invasive surgery really tries to address that for the patient and more importantly, I think, for the health systems alike. Now, the first one has been installed at the Urology Hospital in Pretoria. It's the first one here in South Africa, this Da Vinci surgery robotic system. Now, is this really just focusing at the moment on prostate surgery or is this going to be rolled out for all sorts of other kinds of surgeries as well? Uh, it's a great question. The, the Da Vinci robot is used in multidisciplinary procedures. It will start with uh, prostatectomy because there seems to be a, a great need for that and the doctors at the urology hospital have obviously identified this need and have pioneered for several years to try and bring this technology to the South African people. However, once it is in and established, it can be rolled out to kidney surgery, bladder surgery, all types of female uh, pelvic surgery, so complicated and cancerous types of hysterectomy through to removal of fibroids um, and also uh, pelvic floor type procedures for prolapse surgery. It can be used in colorectal surgery. It can be used in ear, nose and throat for transoral so straight through the mouth, they can operate on tumors of the base of the tongue. And it's also used in cardiothoracic. So if you want to minimally invasively do a single vessel bypass, for example, or if you want to remove a portion of the lung, which typically is called a lobectomy, a, a number of procedures can be done with the same surgical platform. It sounds amazing, but what about the skills required to use this particular robotic system? Are our surgeons here, have they all been trained? And what about skills development? Obviously, because if you get talking about moving into other areas, I'm assuming the surgeons would have to have specialized training to do this. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that you asked the question. Da Vinci is, it is a tremendous technology. But again, you know, I stress that it, it's technology. So it's as good as the person, A, driving the system or instructing the system what to do. It's like a master and slave scenario. And I think it's important for people to understand that you do your homework and you pick a good surgeon. And fundamentally also the surgeon is making decisions. That still does not get replaced. So it's not like you push a button and off the robot goes and does it. So what happens is doctors all know how to, let's say, do a prostatectomy. What happens in what we have is called a clinical pathway. It's a very detailed documented system that takes them from never being on a robot to then safely going through several hours of what we call dry labs where we work in a 
non-clinical setting, just learning to drive the robot, learning to move it, how do you get it off the patient if you need to in a hurry, through to what we call wet labs, which is where you take them to recognized centers in Europe, and they spend, in our case, we'll be going over for, for three days of intensive wet lab training where you're actually either on a porcine or, or, or cadaver model. Again, the whole process is teaching the doctor how to now take this new technology and apply it to the operation that they already do to give them additional benefits and obviously more improved um, outcomes. So the clinical pathway to answer your question is something that is tried and tested and it involves, as I've said, wet, dry labs. But what we also have is something called a skills simulator. Now, the skills simulator is a little 30-kilogram pack that sits on the back of the surgeon console or his cockpit, if you like, where he instructs the robot what to do. And what that allows us to do, there are 33 three-dimensional simulated exercises that I can then sit and do with the doctors and say, right, let's now do these 10 exercises and we need to achieve 90% pass mark on all 10 three times in a row. The doctors then practice, you know, it can be plugged in, honestly, it could be plugged in in the foyer of the hospital. It doesn't physically need all the other components. So it could be in the doctor's rooms. And then what they have to do is all the skills, exercises, it's marking them as they do it. So it's looking at, for example, did they move three times or did they move once? Did they allow their instruments to go out of the field of view or not? And it actually marks them and fails them on the very critical aspects. So what that allows me to do is to then export all of that information to an Excel database and to sit with the doctors and say, right, that was great, let's focus on this. So the beauty about the skills simulator is by the time you actually get to finishing your wet labs uh, situations and then to move to the clinical setting, we know with confidence and the hospital in terms of their credentialing for their doctors knows with confidence that they are very capable of driving or instructing the robot on what to do. And for example, if a doctor's been on a three-week holiday, they can come back and spend three, four, five hours safely in the simulator, refresh themselves, and then obviously once they pass the required levels, then they move on and it's very clearly documented. It's a safe way in three dimension, which is what they're going to be seeing when they operate, but it's a safe way of them learning to to master the equipment. Now, something like this with this training, uh, Dean, would something like this be eventually be put into the curriculum at medical school, that the, ki- the, the students would basically come out of medical school with this training? I, I do believe so. I mean, it's like trying to look into a glass ball, but mm-hmm. I can refer back to my time when I was managing the team for this technology in the UK. And in, in my time over there, working with professors of teaching hospitals, it was becoming the norm where you would almost have a rotational program being set up so that the professors, for example, know that by the time their registrars have come through a rotation of going to a few centers and have done X amount of hours on a simulator, they are now in a position where they can safely start to actually learn in a clinical setting. So I I do believe it will become, not only for, for our technology, I think for many surgical approaches, I think simulation will become commonplace. And I think the big question on everybody's mind when you talk about technology and the doctor not physically being present, if you know what I mean, not actually having hands-on, how Mm -hmm. safe is this? The the technology, to give you an idea, is something that 
does 1,300 checks a second on, on the equipment. So it will always err on the side of caution and very, very, very safe, very reliable. If, however, you needed to, let's say the doctor wanted to get to the patient, one of the parts of, the, of their training as a team, so this, the, not only the doctors but the surgical staff in the theater, is what we call emergency undocking. So if they wanted to get to the patient, that physical robot can be disconnected and moved away from the patient within 17 seconds. But again, you know, I think once the training is done and with the technology at where it is, it's a very, very safe platform. And I think it's almost 15 years now that it's been used globally. I mentioned that it was being installed initially, the very first one, the Da Vinci system being installed at the Urology Hospital in Pretoria. When can we expect more of these? Are they so prohibitively expensive that we're going to have to wait a while? I think uh, without, if my boss is listening, (laughs) hold me to this, but I would be encouraged and and say that I I think we could see another one or two um, during the course of the next 18 months. I don't foresee that we will have one in every hospital because the key thing about any surgical technology or application is you want it in the right center where they've got the right doctors and the right volume to ensure that the efficiency in that application is seen. And that will be the key. I I do think that we will see more of these, and I think that they will be geographically positioned in, if we, for the lack of a better term, centers of excellence where, as I said, you've got the the volume of this of, of the type of procedure, and you've got the the right doctors to op, to operate on it. It's an amazing leap forward, literally, for us here in South Africa to have something like this arriving. I'll be honest. I mean, I, as I said, I, I worked with this in in, in the UK, and um, we, we're incredibly proud to be able to bring this technology because it is the future. It has significant benefits to offer. But again, I, I stress, you know, it's I don't want to paint it. The picture that's the holy grail, but mm. it, it fundamentally what this technology does is wherever a doctor has has had the approach that they use, limit them taking their skills to the next level. This technology is an enabler. It enables them, because of the, the increased dexterity and vision, to allow the surgeon to take these complex procedures to the next level. So it's very exciting and I think we're all very proud to have the opportunity now to to offer this to the South African public. And I think the the last point to make is that it's not replacing our doctors, it is just enhancing their services to us as the patient. That is absolutely correct. The doctor is only three, four metres away in the actual operating theatre. They have direct field of vision with all the people that are, and there are still a number of people standing around the patient. But like you say, it's, just, it, it's really an enhancement. It's not replacing anybody. Dean, it sounds terribly exciting. And um, I wish you much success with the first installation of the Da Vinci system. And as you said, we hopefully could look forward to a couple more in the not too distant future. But thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. My absolute pleasure. And thank you for your time. I was chatting there with Dean Fawcett, Head of Robotic Assistance Surgery at Earth Medical, who are part of the LIFA Healthcare Group. And we were talking about the new Da Vinci Robotic System. If you'd like to find out more, Dean says the best website to go to is www.urology.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. September is Stroke Awareness Month, and so joining me this evening is Dr. Glenn Goldblum, founder and coordinator of Conversational Groups for Individuals Living with Aphasia and Cognitive Communication Disorders in the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria. Glenn, good evening. Welcome to the show. 
Good evening, Karen. Nice to chat with you. So, strokes, I think people aren't really aware of all the things that can happen to you once you've had the stroke and the things that that continue to happen because I think people think, well, you have the stroke and then you go to hospital and then you either get better or you don't. But there's a lot of stuff in between. Most importantly that we're going to speak about are the speech impairments and aphasia that is linked to stroke. Right. Absolutely. So let's begin with defining aphasia, which is really an acquired communication disorder caused by a focal injury to the brain that affects the person's ability to communicate after they've had a stroke, most often after a stroke. It can also be after other neurological disorders such as tumors. And not everybody has aphasia, but people who do have aphasia have difficulty expressing themselves when speaking They may have difficulty understanding the speech of others and also difficulty reading and writing. And, of course, this is to varying degrees. You know, so some people may be more affected than others. There is something else called apraxia. What is that? Well, that's difficulty communicating, voluntarily being able to to communicate, to consciously be able to, to say something is called apraxia of speech. And that can be included in the definition of aphasia. So often people with aphasia have also got an apraxic element, a difficulty consciously being able to copy you or to say something, whereas involuntarily and unconsciously they're able to say those words easily. I was reading some statistics which were rather alarming. It said that aphasia affects about 1 million or 1 in every 272 South Africans, and it's more common than Parkinson's disease. And yet we know almost nothing about aphasia. Absolutely. In fact, we don't actually know, and we we know very little about the precise incidence of stroke and aphasia in South Africa. There is an alarming incidence in America that's been written about, but the statistics in South Africa are very vague. Recently, I was in touch with a professor, Alan Breyer, at the Kruteskuer Hospital, who wrote to me in saying that he's not aware of figures available nationally as to the prevalence of aphasia, but their most recent internal audit of 262 patients in medical wards at Hurtuskew Hospital in a year showed that 41% of those patients had varying degrees of aphasia. So that's some sort of statistics coming out of the South African population, uh, which is really quite scary. In terms of statistics, I've got something else that about 75,000 new strokes a year in South Africa. So there's an alarming amount of people who are living with communication difficulties uh, after having had a stroke. I think possibly one of the concerns as well, though, is if people don't know about aphasia and their doctor doesn't tell them about it, they think, oh, this is just normal, it's part of my stroke condition, and they don't get treated. And I'm sure that is what you do with yes. your groups. That, that is exactly what you are there to do. First of all, it must be abs- there's nothing more terrifying than waking up overnight and, and suddenly you can't speak. And people, most people are completely oblivious about what aphasia is. So they wake up and feel like they've lost their mind. They can't communicate. It's very terrifying and very overwhelming. And often nobody explains it to them in this hospital situation where they're, everyone's running around and, and nobody's really kind of explaining what's happened and sort of, sort of orientating the patient to what's happened. So it's a very overwhelming experience to begin with, and that's where the speech therapist role comes in to hopefully get there as early as possible after the stroke 
to help to assess the situation and to provide information and almost a hand-holding phase for the patient at the bedside to calm them, to explain to them what's happened and to try and help them, you know, understand this very scary, overwhelming, you know, moment in their life. And as time goes on, the whole process of recovery is, is it's a continuum of recovery, but from, from early on where it's really very overwhelming and as time goes on, hopefully more and more information sinks in and the reality sinks in and then, you know, the patient and the family learn to live with the reality of this aphasia. I think one of the other big concerns, though, is that people don't understand exactly how aphasia works and what it does to you as the person with aphasia. But one thing we need to understand is it doesn't affect your intelligence. Most definitely people who have aphasia are intelligent. They're competent individuals and they've still got the ability to think and to make decisions. What happens with aphasia is, particularly if you've got quite severe communication difficulties, it often masks the person's ability to communicate their thoughts and their feelings and their emotions so that it makes them look like they've lost their intelligence. The more that we can create awareness and be, you know, have the opportunity that you're giving me today to raise awareness because there's so much ignorance out there in society about what a communication difficulty is after a stroke. If we can raise awareness, we can lessen the obstacles that exist for people and we can you know, make people feel uh, more confident about talking to people who have aphasia and that they haven't lost their mind and that they're still human beings and to talk to them respectfully. Is this something that can get better or are you, once you have aphasia, that that's it? You're gonna, that's what it's always going to be like? Usually after the first two to three months, uh, that's the initial time period, which is very crucial for complete recovery. But after that, it depends on how, you know, people can continue to recover for months, for years, actually. When I was a young student, I was told that it was, you know, the first six months were the most important in terms of spontaneous recovery and recovering from a stroke. But what we've learned now is that people live with aphasia and they continue to recover years after having had a stroke and, and with aphasia. I work with people 25 years after their stroke, um, and sometimes I'm still shocked at how much their speech appears to have improved years later. You mentioned so recovery is really a lifelong um, concept. You mentioned just a short while ago that one of the things when you're communicating with a person with aphasia is to show them respect. But how does one actually communicate to lessen the frustration on the part of both the person trying to communicate with the person with aphasia and the person with aphasia trying to communicate to you? There must be an awfully high level of frustration. So how do we, as the person that doesn't have aphasia, how do we communicate with the person who has had the stroke? Yeah, that's very a good question because I think that um, it's about empowering both the person with the aphasia and the family member or the significant other. I think that that's a very important concept in uh, the whole issue of rehabilitation and working with people with aphasia is, is creating networks of support for that individual through training important people in that person's life. So some of the skills that you could train them is to give a person with aphasia time to speak not to finish the sentences that the person is trying to make unless they ask you to finish it for them. You have to have their permission, really, to do so. Minimize and eliminate background noise when you're talking to the person 
as much as possible, particularly in the early days, like at the bedside where the patients just had the stroke, to try and you know, not have 10 people standing around the bedside, this overwhelming amount of people. Keeping communication simple, but most importantly, adult. You could simplify your sentence structure and reduce your rate of speech, but you don't need to shout, speaking louder, or emphasize key, key words. And most importantly, not to talk down to the person with aphasia, but to talk to them with respect as an equal adult. As you would have done before they had the stroke. And I think a very important thing is to, where relevant and appropriate, to encourage using other modes of communication. Maybe it's writing or drawing or using some sort of a communication board. So helping the person, to facilitating communication with as least frustration as possible is really what we're trying to teach and encourage important people in that person's life to do. And I think one of the most important things, though, is somebody in with this condition is not to sort of put them in the corner and sort of as a decoration and ignore them over there. Absolutely. Include them in the family. They are still part of the family. Absolutely. I've been working for many years in this field, and it's been quite incredible how much more, you know, through information and how much more uh, empowered people with aphasia have become. And uh, it's efforts like this to create and raise awareness in, in the past, people used to be hidden away in their rooms, left at home, isolated. Today, technology has changed the world for people with aphasia. It's, it's enabled them to get onto Facebook, to use the Internet, to you know, become part of the modern world within their limitations. And um, that's another whole topic that I'd love to talk about, and that is also the role of the iPad and what we're doing here at the University of Pretoria with iPads in our groups. But it's, it's about this exciting opportunity that technology has given people with aphasia to reach out and to connect with others and not to feel so isolated and so abandoned and neglected. Now, you mentioned iPads and your groups and what you're doing. Are yes. you having an open evening if people are wanting to come along and have a look and see what it is you are doing at the university? Yes. When is it and what is actually going to be happening and who can attend? Thanks, Corin. We actually, the University of Pretoria, 18 years ago, I started these conversation groups for individuals who've had, who have communication difficulties following traumatic brain injuries, such as car accidents as well as strokes with aphasia. And over the years, these groups have been running, and on the 16th of October, which is Wednesday evening, the 16th of October, we're having our annual open evening at the University of Pretoria on the campus where the group members in our groups are going to share with members of the public and family uh, some of the projects that we do throughout the year, the group members participate in with my student facilitators. These projects are very much focused on advocacy and empowerment and getting them to raise awareness you know, and to connect internationally with groups in, in Michigan and in San Francisco. We're also doing some projects with them. So it's uh, a different world that we're living in today as compared to even 10 years ago. It's quite amazing. And if people are wanting to come along, Glenn, do they need to let you know? If, if possible, if they could phone uh, Ria Filiun on 012-420-2491 by around Friday the 11th of October, but otherwise they'll be most welcome on Wednesday evening the 16th of October at 7 o'clock in the evening on the University of Pretoria campus. Um, and they can... Um, phone Ria and she could even send them an invitation. 
Yeah, if you, if something you're interested in, it's really nice to be able to come along and just have a look. And it, it's just easier, I think, to come Absolutely. along. There's a lot of people there, and you don't sort of feel awkward. It's it's going to be an open evening. Anybody can come along, and all the information you want, or you, I'm sure, will be able to ask if you want to ask anything. There'll Absolutely. be people there to help you and answer your questions as well. Karen, and one last thing, I just want to say in terms of the iPad. It's not a panacea. The iPad is not a cure. Mm. It's not the answer, the ultimate answer, but it certainly is an incredibly useful tool for people with aphasia who've got different levels of severity of communication difficulty and in some way or other can feel more connected and more part of today's world. It's almost like an assistive device. Absolutely. Effectively. Absolutely. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening. And um, hopefully people have got a slightly better understanding now of what aphasia is all about. And I will give out some contact details if they would like more information. And um, hopefully we can chat again in the future. Thank you very much. It was lovely chatting. Thank Thanks, you for your Morris. time. I was chatting there with Dr. Glenn Goldblum, founder and coordinator of Conversational Groups for Individuals Living with Aphasia and Cognitive Communication Disorders in the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria. And as she said, they are having an open evening on Wednesday, the 16th of October at 7 p.m. at the UP campus. If you want more information, it's 012-420-2491, 2491. Speak to Ria Fulyun and she'll be able to give you all that information. If you are looking for more information on the Speech Language Hearing Association of South Africa, you can have a look at the website. It's www.saslha.co.za or you can call their national number. It's 0861-113-297. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Time to Travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM. Well, it's time for some nighttime music now.